Well, if you've got a Bible, open with me to Luke chapter 9 this morning. Luke chapter 9 is where we're going to be um, in verses 18 to 26. 18 to 26. I'll read it for us and then we'll dive into God's Word together. Beginning in verse 18 of Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, Now it happened that as He was praying alone, Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with Him. And He asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his, uh, himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now this is the fourth week of our prioritized series and we've been looking at our core values uh, because we want our core values to shape us individually and shape our church corporately. Because listen, whatever you prioritize in life has a shaping influence on you, doesn't it? If you prioritize your family, it's going to have a shaping influence. If you prioritize your vocation, if you prioritize your hobbies, all those things are going to shape how you use your time, how you use your resources, where you invest your energy. Whatever you prioritize shapes your life. And we want our core values, the things that we see emerging from the Scriptures that are at the center of who we are as a church, we want those things to shape our lives in 2020 and beyond. So we've looked at gospel centrality, at biblical literacy. Last week we took a look at meaningful membership. And this week we take a look at this core value of intentional discipleship. Intentional discipleship. Now listen, back in Jesus' day, in, in Judaism, in the Jewish people who lived during Jesus' day, um, a disciple, when you think of a disciple, they were someone who was attached to a rabbi. Now a rabbi in Jesus' day would have been a teacher. He would have been someone who had been schooled in the Old Testament Scriptures. He would have taught the Old Testament Scriptures, interpreted the Old Testament Scriptures. And a disciple was someone who had attached himself to a particular teacher or a particular rabbi. So wherever that rabbi went, the disciple went. Whatever the rabbi did, the disciple was training to do. What the, disciple, what the rabbi taught, the disciple listened. When the rabbi ate, the disciple ate. When the rabbi traveled, the disciple traveled. Okay? And learned from that rabbi. In fact, there was a saying in, in, in that day in Judaism, and it went like this. It said, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? A beautiful picture of discipleship. And the saying meant this. Listen, may you, may you be so close to your rabbi, may you be so close to your teacher, that when he goes, you go. When he stops, you stop. Okay, when he sits, you sit. When he speaks, you listen. When he stands, you stand. When he eats, you eat. May you follow so closely behind your rabbi that the dust that he kicks up by walking through a very arid and dry ancient Middle Eastern environment, may that dust cover you because you're so close to him. It's a beautiful picture. 
that you may go everywhere the rabbi goes. In other words, that your life would be ordered around your teacher. Your life would be ordered around your rabbi. Now listen, this kind of discipleship, it does not take place by accident. Okay? It doesn't. So in other words, this kind of this discipleship doesn't just happen to happen. Like you mean for it to happen. It requires some intention on your part. And that's why we call the core value the core value of intentional discipleship. Because it doesn't take place by happenstance or accident. And so when we talk about discipleship here at Redeemer, what we talk about is this. This is how we define it. The discipleship is ordering your everyday, ordinary life. Everyday, ordinary life around the message and mission of Jesus. That's what discipleship is. It's ordering your everyday, ordinary life, right? You're getting up and brushing your teeth kind of life. You're laying down and going to sleep kind of life. You're commuting to work kind of life. Your interaction with your children kind of life. Your, your treatment of your spouse if you're a married kind of life. The way you conduct yourself as a single kind of life. Your everyday ordinary life, ordering that life around the message and the mission of Jesus. Okay? Now, Luke's, this text in Luke's gospel that we just read together has been central in the capital C, big C church's understanding of discipleship for over 2,000 years now. And it's been central to Redeemer's understanding of discipleship in our history. And so we come back to it this morning as we define discipleship. And I want you to see by the end of this sermon why we define discipleship the way that we do out of this particular text. But before we dive into the meat of it, I want to set the stage a little bit more for you this morning with regards to what discipleship is. And I want to do it from the first words of verse 23. So if you have the Bible open, look back into Luke chapter 9, verse 23. When Jesus says, if anyone would come after me. Now listen, throughout the gospel accounts, Jesus invites people to come to him, doesn't he? He does. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, he goes on to say, right, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble or lowly in heart. Okay? That's what Jesus says. Come to me. He extends an invitation for people. Listen, in, in, in their day, the, the, the teachings of the rabbi, the yoke of the rabbi, right, was his understanding of the law, his interpretation of the law. So each rabbi had their own yoke. Right? So to come to be a disciple of that rabbi meant you took his yoke upon you, his interpretation of the law, his understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures. And, G, and, and since what was going on in Jesus' day, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, uh, they had a very, very rigid interpretation of the law and understanding of the law. And so they, they were burdening people with their yoke. And Jesus says, listen, come to me because my yoke is easy. My burden is light. My understanding of the law is, is not going to overwhelm you in the way that their understanding of the law did. I don't have a list of rules and regulations and check boxes. But listen, Jesus says his yoke is easier than that of the, of the Pharisees. Not because, listen, not because it's more manageable for us. I want you to know something. When Jesus interprets the law, listen to what he says. Right? You want to know the law and the prophet summed up? What does he say? Love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
In other words, love God with everything that you have and love your neighbor, your energy being directed toward caring for them, even as you would care for your own self, your own life. Now let me ask you a question. Is that easier than a list of checkboxes? I would submit to you this morning, it's actually harder. It's actually harder. And here's why. Because you can't look at the end of the day and go, check, 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 check. I got all the rules in place. But Because when you look at that yoke of the law and Jesus says, love me with all that you have and love your neighbors yourself, right? You, there's none of us in the room that can say, I have loved God with every thought that I have had, every desire that I have felt, every emotion that has been elicited, right? Every decision that I've made, every willful action that I've committed. None of us can say I've loved God with everything that I am. And none of us can say at the end of the day, I've loved my neighbor at every opportunity that I've had and the way that I love myself. See, Jesus' yoke is not more manageable for us, church, but it is more merciful to us. You know why? Because He Himself, He Himself fulfilled it in our place. That's why He could say, come to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Not because it's more manageable for you, but because you, I, through me you would receive God's mercy. Through me you would, you would receive God's grace. So come to me, he says. Throughout the Gospels, he invites people to come to him. But listen, here in the text, it's not what he says. He didn't say, come to me. He says, if anyone would come after me. See, we come to Jesus to receive grace. We come to Jesus to receive mercy. We come to Jesus by faith to be born again. God is gracious to us in the new birth and being merciful to us. But after those of us who come to Jesus to receive grace, we respond to grace by coming after Him. Because it's, there's, it's a different mentality of those who are coming after Him. Listen, the word if in verse 23, it's a, it sets off a conditional statement, doesn't it? In other words, not everyone who comes to Jesus comes after Him. In fact, we told, we're told in the Gospels that some who come to Him, they go away sad or they go away angry. But yet, he says, if, any, if anyone would come after me, the word after in the Greek, I'm going to get a little technical with you this morning, all right? So just bear with me, hang with me, all right? The word after is an adverb, okay? And it describes the manner in which we would come after or come to him. It means to come after someone as a guide, someone as a follower. In other words, you're patterning your life after the way in which Jesus has lived and the way in which Jesus has acted and the way in which Jesus has cared and the way Jesus has conducted himself. So, so Jesus says, if you would come after me. Now, the, the, the verb to come after, a little technical again, listen, it's, it's a present, it's a present Okay, present tense verb, present active verb. And what, it, what, it, what that means is this, in case you forgot like ninth grade English. Okay, what that means is this. It means it's a continual coming after. It's continual. It's not a one-time thing. So you're waking up every day, saying, I'm going to order my life. I'm going to pattern my life after Jesus. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to come after him. I'm going to order my life around his message. I'm going to order my life around his mission. It's a continual thing that happens every single day. 
And so what Jesus does here in the, very, in, in the first several words of verse 23 is he kind of throws down the gauntlet for discipleship and he says this, discipleship is not optional. Okay, it's not optional. He says, if you want to have anything to do with me, it will be as my disciple, not merely as my beneficiary. Okay, you're not just the one who's listed in my life insurance policy, but you're going to be a follower of mine if you want to come after me. Okay. There is no category of Christian who's not a disciple. And listen, any Christianity without discipleship is heresy. It's heresy. Because a real taste of grace, a legitimate experience of God's mercy, it's like an earthquake. And you know what an earthquake has? Lasting effects. And a real taste of grace, a legitimate experience of mercy in your life has lasting, profound effects in your life. So that you would come after him. You would follow him. You would order your life around him. So if you want anything to do with Jesus at all, he says, you come to him to receive grace and you respond to grace by coming after him and ordering your life around his message and his mission every day when you wake up. You see why we define discipleship the way that we do? Ordering your everyday ordinary life around the message and the mission of Jesus. So what does that look like for us? Here, let's get to the meat of this passage where Jesus lays down two terms for those who would come after Him, those who would follow Him daily. And listen to what He says. The first term is this. He says, if you want to come after Me, you have to mature in your capacity to side with Jesus against yourself. To side with Jesus against yourself. Where do I get that from the text? In verse 23, Jesus says, if you would come after me, he says, let him deny himself. Self-denial means that I don't side with myself against Jesus, but I side with Jesus against myself. Now, some of you are probably thinking, man, that sounds, a little, sounds interesting. I can't wait to see where you go with that, right? As one pastor put it, in every disciple of Jesus on this side of heaven, listen, because on this side of heaven, while God has indeed been gracious to us, He's caused us to be born again. The new covenant promise of Ezekiel, when He's going to put a heart of flesh within us, remove the heart of stone, the heart of stone that was cold and indifferent and unresponsive to God, put a heart of flesh within us that beats, that loves, that is warm, that is responsive to God. That's the idea there, right? He's going to take out that part of our heart, the center of our beings that was cold and unresponsive, and replace it with one that is alive and responsive to God. And even though we have that heart of flesh as Christians within us, listen, we still struggle with the remnant of the flesh, of our sinful nature. We still struggle with that. And so, short of heaven, you and I as Christians, those of you who are Christians in the room this morning, you and I, listen, we're going to be battling with what one pastor said was a sacred schizophrenia all of our days. Okay? Because you've got a heart of flesh that is, loves God, is responsive to Him, but you still have the remnant of sinful flesh in your body that is prone toward wandering and leaving this God that you love. And as a result, there is a self that is doing the denying and a self that is being denied when Jesus says, let him deny himself. There is a her that is doing the denying and a herself that is being denied in the process of siding with Jesus against yourself. Now listen, siding with Jesus against yourself doesn't mean you renounce all desires, but it means you renounce those desires that are harmful, that are sinful, and that ultimately will make you hollow as a human being. 
they will gut you. Those desires of the flesh. Doesn't mean saying no to everything. It means saying no to the right things so you can say yes to the right things. You with me? Okay, so siding with Jesus against yourself. Right? Let me see if I can break it down for you this way. This is what it looks like. I don't know if you've ever been traveling on an old country road. Uh, maybe going, I don't know, I know some of you like to hunt and some of you like to fish. Uh, maybe you're going to a deer lease or you're going to a, do- a dove field to go kill some birds, which you're going to put on the grill and wrap in bacon and stuff with cream cheese and jalapenos. Or maybe you're going fishing to a- at a pond or a lake, but you're traveling down an old country road and you begin to pass by all this property and all this property has fence lines. Okay, and all these fence lines have signs hanging on them because they're private property. And they have signs hanging on that say, posted, no trespassing. Okay, now listen, as you drive down those country roads, I don't care how many thousands of dove you see in that field. Okay, I don't care how many, how many, how many big bucks you see in that field. How many ducks you see in that field floating in those ponds. I don't care if you see a pond that has a 23-pound largemouth bass that erupts on top of the water, engulfs a massive turtle, and sucks it underneath and eats it. You can't cross into that property because it's private property. No trespassing. It's posted. The owners don't want you there. You know that? I don't care what's on the other side of that fence. The owners have said, this far, no further. You are not welcome. And listen, when we grow and mature in our capacity to side with Jesus against ourselves, what that looks like is we begin to slowly tear down all the posted signs in our lives. And nothing any longer is private property belonging to me. But fence lines begin to fall. So we don't look at God and say, listen, God, this far, no further. You can, you, can come up, you can come to this point, but I've got a fence line here. There's a sign posted, God. There's restricted access. There's limitations, God, to how much you can have of my life because my yes to you has been capped. In other words, I will only say yes to so much, God, but there comes a limit. There comes some boundary lines. But when we grow in our capacity to side with Jesus against ourselves. We realize there can be no tracts of land in our lives in which God cannot trespass. There can be no acreage in our lives to which God has restricted access, no parcels of our lives that are posted because He owns all of us. And so when He begins to press on areas of our life, listen, to deny ourselves means that we are denying that old sinful flesh. We're saying no to our flesh and saying yes to God by siding with Jesus against ourselves. That's what self-denial is. That every time he crosses the fence line, no matter how uncomfortable or inconvenient it may be, we say yes to him. Let me me see if I can make it real practical and real plain. Listen, listen, In Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, before Paul ever gets to the fruit of the Spirit, he talks about the works of the flesh. And in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, he says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and these things like these. In other words, Paul says, this isn't an exhaustive list, it's an exemplary one, okay? Things like this, right? These are works of the flesh. 
And so every time my flesh starts to itch, I don't know if your flesh ever starts to itch, but mine starts to crawl every once in a while. It starts to itch every once in a while. And when your flesh starts to itch, that old sinful nature, right, do you have a choice to make? Am I going to side with myself against Jesus and yield to that itch and start scratching it? Or am I going to side with Jesus against myself? And what you realize, and I don't know if you've ever had just a, an itch in your body somewhere, but it, it feels like you're, just, you're, going to, you're going to come out of your skin if you don't scratch it. But you know what I've noticed over time? Is that if I refuse to scratch it, eventually something happens, right? It just kind of goes away. It goes away. So am I going to side with myself against Jesus or side with Jesus against myself when my flesh starts to itch? Right? Will I side with Jesus against myself? Or will I side with myself against Jesus whenever my self-righteous anger begins to bubble up to the surface? Who am I going to side with? Am I going to give full, full release to my self-righteous anger? Or am I going to repent of it? Who am I going to side with? Right? Will I side with myself against Jesus when I allow jealousy to fester in my heart towards those who may have gotten an opportunity before me, they were promoted before me, they passed me over for somebody else? Or will I side with Jesus against myself by celebrating with those who got opportunities ahead of me and not yielding to jealousy, to work of the flesh? Right? Will I, students, listen to me. I'm going to ask you a question. Will you side with yourself against Jesus or will you side with Jesus against yourself when it comes to the role of authority in your life as your parents, or who are the God-appointed authorities in your home? Will you submit to that? Will you bring yourself under that? Will you receive their wisdom, listen to their counsel, submit to their authority? Or will you side with yourself against Jesus by rebelling, pushing back, arguing at every juncture? You have a choice to make. All of us have a choice to make about who we're going to side with. Okay? Will, will you side with yourself against Jesus or side with Jesus against yourself? Jesus says that's the first term of discipleship. It's learning self-denial. Now, listen. Let me give you a, a practice to help mature in your capacity to do that. Listen, the way that you can train yourself for this, because listen, this doesn't come naturally to you. Okay? Just like going out and running a marathon tomorrow it wouldn't come naturally to you. You have to train for it. Okay? And you train for it. One of the ways you can train for this is through fasting. It's through fasting. It's through the practice and the discipline of fasting. See, fasting is a rhythm in our lives that helps us grow in our capacity to side with Jesus against ourselves, to say no to ourselves, to say no to our appetites. Okay? Say no to that rumbling in our stomachs or in our souls. That's what fasting does for us. It trains us. It develops stronger muscles of self-denial in our lives. And for those of us who, who do not practice the discipline of fasting, we're limiting our capacity to say no to ourselves. Now listen, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus speaks about prayer, and He speaks about giving, and He speaks about fasting, when He speaks about fasting, He doesn't say, if you fast, fast this way, but He says, when you fast, fast this way. In other words, Jesus assumes that those that he's teaching, those that are following him, they're actually practicing this discipline of fasting in their lives. By saying, when you fast, right, just go on as, as, life, as life would normally do, right? Don't make a big spectacle out of it. That's his whole point of not practicing your acts of righteousness before men to be seen and receive your applause and your reward here, 
right? But practice your disciplines, of, those disciplines of grace, not to be seen by others, but it, to foster this relationship that God desires to have with you as you want to grow in your capacity to side with Him, right? And fasting helps us do that by saying no to ourselves. It trains us to do that, right? I wonder when the last time it is that you've said no to an appetite or no to a hunger or no to a desire in your life that seem to be screaming at you, right? You train yourself through fasting. Now, fasting might come in many forms. In, the, in, in, in Jesus' day, it was fasting from food. And there are people who still can fast from food. It's one legitimate means of fasting, of saying no to a meal. And every time you begin to feel your stomach growl, because my stomach works like clockwork. I don't know about yours, okay? My, my stomach knows when I've missed a meal, Right? But whenever you miss that meal and your stomach begins to rumble, right? you take those rumblings and you turn them into an opportunity to pray, to get into the Word. Okay? You're saying no to that appetite. And you know what happens? Craziest thing. If you say no to that appetite, as your stomach begins to rumble, an hour later, it goes away. It goes away. And so you know what that teaches you? It teaches you, yes, I can say no to some things in my life that I think in the moment that I have to have because maybe an hour from now, maybe a day from now, maybe a month from now, those things will, reside, they will rescind. The floodwaters will pull back. And I'll be able to stand on firm ground. So maybe it's fasting from food. Maybe it's fasting from tech. Okay? I don't know about your life, but my life at times can be immersed in the stuff. Okay, maybe you say no to social media presence for a week, a month, a year, right? A year free from bondage to this thing, okay? So I can devote that attention and that time to prayer and to study and to fellowship with other believers, right? And so I'm fasting from that. And so every time you feel the urge to put the app back onto the phone, to go back to it on the computer, you say no. And you know what happens over time? That that, that appetite, that rumbling in your soul gets lower and lower and lower and you realize I can say no to some things in the moment that I thought I had to have. Right, that's what fasting does. It trains you. Right, so in those larger moments of life, whenever you're faced with the decision, am I going to side with Jesus against myself or side with myself against Jesus? You've trained yourself by saying no to yourself through fasting for those moments. That's the first term that Jesus lays out. Second term that Jesus lays out of discipleship. He says, you've got to side with me against yourself, but you also have to serve me instead of yourself. Serve me instead of yourself, Jesus says. In verse 23, let me show you where this is in the text. When Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. And the second thing that he says is, and take up his cross. Take up his cross. Now listen. We talk about bearing crosses in our, in our culture in ways that Jesus never intended for us to understand it. I want you to recognize that, right? We talk about bearing crosses as passive resignation to difficult things that we're facing in life. I'm just kind of resigned to things that are outside of my control. A couple of years ago, we adopted this small um, Jack Russell Corgi mix from the Garland Animal Shelter. And we brought her home into our house. Mm. And, and in which there were many rooms that had carpet. You know where this is going, don't you, right? 
And that dog proceeded to urinate and defecate on just about every piece of carpet we had in the house. I was so close, so close to getting her in the car, driving her back to the animal shelter and saying, here, take her back. Somebody else can have her. And I would have had my children not have been heartbroken in that moment. They'd waited so long for a dog and I had held out for so long that I just yielded. And so we trained her. She doesn't do that anymore. Okay? But listen, that was a difficult time for me. Coming home every single day until we got her a crate trained. Okay? Every single day. And cleaning up urine and cleaning up poo on the carpet. Right? Taking the carpet cleaner out, steam, hot water extraction, all that stuff. But listen, there are some people who might speak of that as a cross to bear. That is not what Jesus is referring to here. Okay? He's not referring to passive resignation to the mess of life. He's not even referring to the difficulties of and heartbreak of divorce or of losing a spouse or of chronic illnesses or the loss of a job or financial struggles. Those are not crosses to bear because he's not talking about passive resignation. What Jesus says when he talks about taking up your cross, it's a present active verb. Again, So it's active participation in something, not passive resignation to something. But actively participating in the work that God is doing, identifying with Jesus who himself bore the cross all the way to Calvary for you and I, that we would take up our cross, not a piece of jewelry around our neck. I'm not knocking it if you got one on this morning. But listen, it's more than that. It's more than that. It's identifying with Jesus by stepping forward into his mission, regardless of the cost, regardless of what it would bring in our lives. It's identifying with him, taking up our cross. And Luke adds the the adverb daily to the text. It's the only one of the gospel authors that adds the daily aspect. So again, this is not a one-time event, but it's every day waking up and asking myself this question. Today, am I going to serve myself or today am I going to serve Jesus? Because we're all faced with that question every single day. Andy Minio, a Christian hip-hop artist, said it this way in his song, Tug of War. He says, I wear a cross and give you thanks for my blessings. Ain't that enough? Right? We think that's enough, right? I got a cross around my neck and at award shows, who's the first person I think? I want to thank God, right? I wear a cross around my neck and give you thanks for my blessings. Ain't that enough? Why you want everything? Can't you leave this part of my life untouched? I thought following you meant I only had to say yes once. And he's pushing back against this idea of, yes, when I was seven and I walked the aisle and I took the preacher's hand and I prayed a prayer and I got dunked, that's when I said yes. And that may have been the initiation of a relationship, of a walk with God, but that was not the culmination of it. The culmination of it will come one day in glory as we continue every day to put our feet on the path of siding with Jesus against ourselves and serving Jesus instead of ourselves. Daily, daily, daily. Siding and serving. Siding and serving. And listen, here's why this is so important, church. Here's why it's so important. Because serving yourself instead of Jesus, listen, I want you to know something. It is spiritual suicide. It is spiritual suicide. Now listen, I know the word suicide is a hard word. 
It's a hard word because some of us in the room have known individuals who have either contemplated or carried out suicide. Listen, I've, done, I've been to funerals for young people who have committed suicide. I've conducted funerals for adults who have done the same. And it's a heartbreaking, devastating moment when that takes place. And so some of us trip over that idea of suicide for that reason. Other of us might trip over the idea of suicide because we think it's a little too harsh for what Jesus says in verse 24. We think that maybe, maybe what Jesus is really saying is that, is that uh, it would be better to say, if, like, if the repetitive pattern of your life is serving yourself instead of Jesus, you won't enjoy the fullness of life that God intends. Right? You'll miss out on your best life now. And listen, while that may be the case, that may be true, Right? It does not capture the full weight of what Jesus says in verse 24 when he says, For whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus says, if you hold on to your life here and now, you're going to forfeit your life. You will never know the fullness of life here, and you will never know the fullness of eternal enjoyment there if you hang on to your life now. In other words, if you side with yourself, if you serve yourself continually, if that's the pattern of your life, and you never side with Jesus against yourself and serve Jesus instead of yourself, listen, you're forfeiting real life. You're forfeiting eternal life by trying to hold on to your life. Essentially what Jesus is saying is this, we're all dying some way, some shape, or some form every single day. The choice is the manner in which you will die. Either you will serve yourself and side with yourself over and over again every day when you wake up, and you will slowly be, be committing soul suicide. You'll be losing your life. You'll be losing it. It'll be, it'll be, like, going in, it'll be like breathing in carbon monoxide. Right? Poisonous, dangerous. It will erode your soul. And what you experience in this world will be your experience forever as you continue on that trajectory of breathing in selfness, siding with yourself, serving yourself. Or, listen, listen, or you can die to yourself every day. You can die to yourself every day. And you can save your life. You can find true life, Jesus says. You won't be hollow, but you'll be substantial. You become more and more human, not less and less human, as you devolve into this hollow shell of humanity that is self-centered and self-focused and self-absorbed. You'll become more and more human as you're put back together into the image of Jesus as you side with Him and serve Him. Listen, serving Yourself, instead of him, it is spiritual suicide. The question, church, of discipleship that many of, us, many of us think the question of discipleship is this. Who will you die for? That's what we think, right? And so we say, hey, if somebody comes in the room, God forbid, but if it should happen, and they say, if you believe in Jesus, stand up. And if you stand up, right, they're going to put an end to your life. I'd stand up, right? I'd die for Jesus, I, I would, I would today if that happened. And that's, that's what we think the question of discipleship is. But Jesus flips the coin on it. He says, the question is not, who would you die for? The question is, who will you die to? Who will you die to? Because listen, in those moments in which the Lord may call upon us to give our lives for Him, if we have not died to ourselves, denied ourselves, said no to ourselves, 
then we are living in a fantasy world if we think that in that moment, if the Lord were to call upon us to give our lives for Him, that we would actually stand up and say yes. Because I'm going to preserve my life at all costs. And Jesus says, if that's you, what you don't realize is you're actually forfeiting it. So this is discipleship. Siding with Jesus against yourself. Serving Jesus instead of yourself. You train yourself for self-denial through fasting. And you train yourself for serving Jesus. There's really not another way to say it other than through service. Then through service. Right? It doesn't, listen, it doesn't come natural to serve others. And one of the ways that we can train our, or particularly to serve God instead of ourselves. And one of the ways we train ourselves for this is through the discipline of service. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that service is rooted in humility as we count others more significant than ourselves and we look out for their interests. Hear what he says in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And he says in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then he goes on to talk about the mind of Christ, having it in you, who did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, and gave his life all, all the way, served us all the way to the cross. Jesus, uh, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition, nothing from vain conceit, but humility would give birth to this counting, considering others more significant than us. So that I put their interests, consider them above my own, and not just always be focused on what this can do for me. Listen, that is our natural bent. You know how I know that? Because I see it in, our, in my kids, and I see it in me. Huh. I see it in, in, in humanity. Even yesterday. My kids were out playing in the street, and we have a neighbor who, who lives on our street. I won't even tell you where they live, because I don't, I don't even, if you come over to my house, I want you to go back. That was the house, right? But they have a neighbor who lives on my street. Um, and, the kid, and, and they have a young daughter who was outside playing with my daughter. Um, and um, through the course of that interaction, listen, girls are just different, you know what I'm saying? Um, they, they can just get stirred up in drama really, really quickly. Um, and so drama began to emerge in the context of them playing together. Um, and this young girl, um, she, she has a tendency at times to be very unkind and rude to all the other kids who are on the street. And so she had acted in a way that was very unkind towards Sarah. Well, so Sarah comes over to, over to me and she's very upset about how she's been treated. So I'm talking with her. She's sitting there. I'm encouraging her, trying to love on her. And then the other young lady comes back after all of her friends who are coming over to her house come. Um, and she comes back and she, she begins to be real sweet to Sarah and real nice to Sarah because she sees Sarah's been upset and she's sitting there next to her daddy who she thinks told her now about how she was treated. But also this young lady comes over because she wants her friends to be able to use our trampoline in the backyard. And so she comes over and she's real nice to Sarah and says, Sarah, can we go jump? And Sarah's like, yeah, let's go jump, right? So she bounces back real quickly and goes jump with her. But just in that moment, I realized just the nature of humanity is only to be kind and serve others whenever they can do something for us. But by nature, by nature, we treat others poorly. We don't look out for the interests of others unless there's some way they can look out for our interests. And listen, listen, church, one way to combat that 
is to routinely, sacrificially, and mercifully serve the needs of others who are around you. I say routinely because most of us love the idea of radical service. We're going to go do something amazing, something exceptional, something big. But listen, you want to know what determines the heart of a servant is whether they be willing to serve in the routine ways that never get the spotlight, that are never platformed, that no one else ever sees. Because then no one else can ever do anything for you in that. Routine service outside of the spotlight. Sacrificial service. Something that would cost us. It would cost us energy. It would cost us time. It's not like, well, you know, I'll, serve up, I'll show up and volunteer or I'll serve whenever it doesn't interfere with my personal schedule. Sometimes it's saying no to my personal schedule so I can say yes, right? It's siding with Jesus against myself, serving Jesus instead of myself, saying no to my personal schedule so I can lean into the needs of others who might be indeed more significant than mine. And then it's serving mercifully, expecting nothing in return. Expecting nothing in return and leaning into those opportunities that are going to require more than Listen, I think it's great. We have benefited from it through having our two children and having many, many medical procedures with my daughter and having people show up on our doorstep with meals. You've benefited from that. Many of you have as well as a part of this church body. It's a blessing not to have to worry about food. But listen, there are needs that go beyond showing up on the doorstep with a meal that require sacrifice and mercy to be poured out continually, 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 continually. Every day waking up and asking myself the question, who am I going to serve? And for some of us, it might look like routinely getting involved in an act of service here in the life of this church. It might look like routinely getting involved on a serving team here. Routinely getting involved in a need in my community. Routinely getting involved in an individual's life who can do nothing for me. Who can't return that for me. And I'm going to look out for their interests whether they can look out for mine or not. You train yourself. You train yourself for this through service that is routine, sacrificial, and merciful. Now listen, as we close this morning, I, I, I would be remiss not to give you one last thing. Because so far I've told you a lot about how we ought to respond. Let me tell you why we ought to respond that way. And here's why. I want you to know something, church. The reason we respond in this way, the reason we come after Jesus, the reason we side with Him against ourselves, the reason we serve Him instead of ourselves is because He has come after and served us. He's come after and served us. Right? I want you to know something. That in the Garden of Gethsemane, and even before the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is in the wilderness and being tempted... And you know what he did over and over again, time and time again, in the three temptations there in the wilderness and then in the garden as well? He sides with his father against himself. And he submits himself to the will of God. Particularly in the garden of Gethsemane, you remember he's praying and he's sweating drops of blood, crying out, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Let it pass. But nevertheless, not my will, what I desire, what I would want in this moment, but what you have willed from the foundations of the world. Let that come to pass in my life. You see, do you know in that moment that what Jesus did is He sided with His Father against Himself 
for you and for me. That Jesus vacated the throne room of heaven even as we sang about this morning, and He stepped into human history into a cradle as a baby to come after us, to pursue us who had rebelled against Him and to bring us into His family, to adopt us as His sons and daughters. And so when we talk about siding with Him against ourselves and serving Him instead of ourselves, it's not that I have to just whip up enough willpower in order to motivate myself to be good and do right. It's no seeing that He's come after me. He's come to me. He's served me. He has saved me. And therefore, my life, I want it to count. I want it to count for His glory. I want it to count for His majesty. So I take up my cross and I come after Him every single Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not a Christian, there's never been a time in which God opened your eyes to see the weight of your own sin and the beauty of Him as your Savior and you repented and responded in faith and trust. I'm going to be in the back today. I would invite you. I'd love to connect with you. Talk to you about what it means to take that first step of siding with Jesus against yourself so that you can learn what it means to serve Him instead of yourself. If you're interested in that today, I'll be in the back. I'd love to connect with you afterwards. If you have questions about the church, about Redeemer, I'll be there as well. I'd love to answer those for you. In a moment, the band's going to come and lead us in song as we respond to what God has said. And as we do, my hope would be that if there are areas in your life today in which you've been siding with yourself against Jesus, that today you would put a flag in the ground and you would say, no, far, no, no further. I'm going to tear down this fence line. I'm going to remove that posted sign and give God access. He's no longer restricted from this area of my life. And what repentance looks like, you know what, I want to work that out in this body of believers. I might ask our elders. I might ask my life group leader. I'm going to ask somebody else, what do you think repentance looks like for this? I'm going to open that up. And if you've just been serving yourself instead of Jesus, I want to ask you this morning that maybe there would be a moment of clarity for you that you would say, you know what, God, help me to take my eyes off of myself and my needs and my interest and see the needs and interest of others and move towards them in meaningful, significant, merciful, sacrificial, and sometimes very routine ways. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much this morning for Your Son. Father, without Him, we would be utterly lost and condemned, condemned to hell, to spend eternity separated from you. But Father, because of Him, because of His grace, because of His mercy, because of Your great love for us, You made a way where there was none through the cross. Through Your Son living in our place, through Him dying in our place, through Him bearing our punishment at the cross because we could not love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and we could not love our neighbor as ourself. But that He bore that for us after fulfilling both of those commands in our place so that we might taste of your mercy and that your yoke would be as it's laid upon us. It would be one that we desire to do, not that we merely have to do. And Father, that we would mature as disciples of Jesus 
individually, we would mature as a church, as one who at every turn is saying yes to you, yes to you, yes to you, and no to ourselves. And that we might do so because you said no to yourself. So that you can say yes to us eternally. We pray it in Jesus' name.